afternoon, everybody. How are you? It's good to be with you guys. Um, yeah, the summer's almost over. Uh, I mean, usually like August, August and Sundays too, like the end of the weekend, the end of the summer, like it always bums me out. This is the first August, like I'm happy. The summer's almost over. It's really exciting. My daughter goes back to school, first grade. She got the teacher she was praying for. Uh, Yeah, it's pretty exciting. On Wednesday, which to me feels very early. If I was going into first grade, I would feel ripped off. Like, I don't know. When I went to school, it was after Labor Day you went back. So I don't know. They say it pays off somewhere else during the year, but I'm... I'm watching. Actually, why would I complain as the parent, though? Why, why would that uh, bother me? That's uh, more time where she's occupied with people smarter than me, so that's probably good. Um, but I hope the summer's been great for you guys. Did most people leave? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, clapping. We, we leave like once a week. We've been leaving. We've been doing, we, we go just, it seems like if you go on the other side of the mountain, like it gets significantly uh, more tolerable. Uh, so we've been doing that at least once a week. That's the way we've managed. Those, that's been our vacation, uh, which has been awesome. Um, I have for you uh, the 19th chapter of Exodus today. I prepared some thoughts. Uh, this is a passage uh, which has... Uh, yeah, it's. It, it, it's, I, I won't lie, uh, it's, it's difficult. <laughs> uh, it's demanding, uh, and that's part of the point. Uh, it, it, is a, it is definitely a, um, a, a shock to the system every time I read it. Uh, having said that, it's also deeply encouraging and gives us quite a window into what really, I think, what salvation ultimately looks like. Well, um, we've been going through the book of Exodus up until about a month ago. Then we took like a month break. We had a bunch of different special services, um, like a meal. We had the, uh, the, the college ministry uh, led a service at one point. So you have to think back to like first week of July, and Darren gave us a wonderful sermon on uh, Israel's experience just after crossing the sea. Um, and you might have forgotten what that looked like, but it, it was a lot of quarreling, complaining, doubting, and being frightened. <laughs> uh, because they, they weren't exactly sure how to be uh, now that they weren't uh, in Egypt any longer. And it was difficult almost immediately after leaving uh, Pharaoh's household. So uh, there's been this journey that we, we haven't paid attention to for the last few weeks, but we're picking up on this journey on the other side of Egypt. Um, and I, I'll show you. Well, I'll waste no time. Let's just, let's just get into it. The, the title of, of the talk, or the sermon, rather, uh, today is, You Shall Be to Me. Exodus 19. On the third new moon... After the Israelites had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that very day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They journeyed from Rephidim, entered the wilderness of Sinai, 
and camped in the wilderness. Israel camped there in front of the mountain. It feels really redundant, doesn't it? Like we, we get the point. You, they camped in Sinai. Uh, then Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him from the mountain. Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the Israelites, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession out of all the peoples. Indeed, the whole earth is mine, but you shall be for me a priestly kingdom or a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the Israelites. So Moses went, summoned the elders of the people, and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. The people all answered, as one, everything that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. Then the Lord said to Moses, I am going to come to you in a dense cloud in order that the people may hear when I speak with you and so trust you ever after. So you notice, and this has been a a puzzle for interpreters of of this chapter, really of, of the first five, even more, the first six books of, of the, the Bible. Um, You run into moments like, what we saw in the first two verses where it's just, it's, it's like re- repetitive. <laughs> One thing we can, we can say about these first two verses, they came to the wilderness of Sinai, they camped there, they came to the wilderness of Sinai, there they camped. What's important? <laughs> yeah, camping at Sinai. This, this is an important moment for the people. It's kind of an arrival. They've gotten somewhere. It's been around three months, maybe three months, a little less, since they left Egypt. And it's been a hard journey so far. They've struggled to trust God and to trust that their leaders were speaking for God for the last few months. But now they come to this place where they're going to camp and they're going to be here for 58 chapters all of the rest of the book of Exodus, the entire book of Leviticus, and the first ten chapters of the book of Numbers. Uh, Numbers chapter 10, verse 11 is when they finally pick up and leave. It's about a year they're going to be here. So whatever Sinai means, it's important. Now, we didn't, we didn't read on, um, but if we read on, it becomes very frightening uh, pretty quick at Sinai. Uh, God descends in a cloud. Have you guys been in a a thunderstorm before? I feel stupid asking that, but I haven't seen any rain since we've been here, so it's a a legitimate question. Um, But sometimes the thunder hits so loud that you kind of like black out like it's an overload to your system. You ever experienced that? It's like so loud you think you you died. (laughs) Um, 
that was the experience for a while, like that kind of level of volume and being unsettled. When God came on the mountain to meet with the people, it was a terrifying and overwhelming and dangerous experience. And you learn, when God comes to meet with the people on this mountain, this God is not safe. It's dangerous to be in His presence. And this is part of the point we learn in about the middle of chapter 20. Moses says something that's really bizarre, but gives you quite an insight into what it means to fear the Lord. He says, don't be afraid of what you're seeing God has come to make you afraid of what you're seeing. (laughs) Like, don't be afraid. He's not going to kill you. But now you know. (laughs) Now you recognize what power and glory feels like. And it will help you to be in awe of him. Your life flows out from not some sort of passive deity among the deities, but from the great creator. There's a point to this. Now, God, presumably Sinai, a mountain of some kind, I don't think it's probably big like San Jacinto. No one knows precisely where Mount Sinai is. If you got in a plane and flew over uh, to to northern Africa, I don't think you'd discover it. Um, And there's not a, a lot of clarity about all that's going on here. But we can at least say it was frightening for the people. Now, the mountain itself we've encountered before. Do you remember this? Chapter 3, Moses comes to this mountain and finds a little bush in Hebrew, Haseneh. Sounds a lot like Sinai, in fact. And it's on fire. And Moses is scared by the little bush burning. (laughs) But now the whole mountain is going to be on fire and smoking. And God says, the Lord, Yahweh, says to Moses, then you'll know that I've sent you when you show up back here after I've delivered all the people and all the people will be here with you. And now we're at that moment. The people have been brought, brought. They didn't just accidentally or incidentally stumble their way out of prison. It wasn't a prison break. God brought them out. But the mountain itself, this is really, this is really deep. And I wish this would uh, require like a drop down bar right here. And we'd spend a couple weeks of sermons on this. But Mount Sinai is, has a lot to do with creation, this story, if we were to read on. And it actually calls to mind the first couple of chapters of the Bible. Specifically, the story about the Lord God being in a place called Eden with two human beings. We learn in the book of Ezekiel that Eden was, in fact, on a mountain. Well, that makes sense because the waters are flowing out from Eden to water the rest of the world. You can go back and look at that. It makes sense that it would be at a high elevation. And gods in the ancient Near East and in Israel, are often said to dwell on summits of big mountains, or at least mountains. And even if you go back and look at the Eden story, you'll find there's these kind of spheres of of holiness, so to speak. 
where you have God, the most holy place. And then you have an area where the priests can be, and then you have an area outside of that. You have this like tripartite structure to the Eden story. Well, you have that with the mountain as well. You're going to find God at the top. Moses can go part way up. The elders and Joshua can go part way up, and the people must sit at the bottom. You're going to find that exact structure in the tabernacle, and you're going to find that exact structure when the tabernacle becomes a brick-and-mortar building in Jerusalem, that there's this uh, holy uh, experience at Sinai, which harkens all the way back to Eden. You following me? But the idea here is not that, and we'll see this when we talk about the tabernacle in two weeks, it's not like it's like heaven. The idea is where God is, where God comes down on this mountain, it is heaven. Heaven and earth are touching one another at the peak of this mountain. God has come down and the people must go up the high and exalted God. And to our surprise in Isaiah, we'll find that God is both high and holy and has an address living with the humble and broken. But this God comes and he brings heaven with him because that's how it is wherever he is. Heaven and earth are intersecting at this mountain. Now Moses goes up. The Gospel according to Matthew quotes this line. This is really cool. There's a part in the Gospel of Matthew called the Sermon on the Mount. And it begins with these words in Greek. It's the same words of the Greek version of Exodus where it says, and he goes up the hill. And then Jesus begins to teach. Well, Jesus got that from this story. Moses goes up into heaven, so to speak, meets with God and is given a word for the people who are at the bottom. But what's happening here at Sinai is important. And we might read right past it because what follows on these chapters is just a bunch of laws. You get the Ten Commandments, you're familiar with those, and then you get 42 more laws uh, that seem really irrelevant for us today. Uh, They're not, but they can feel like that. We're usually on the hunt for action when we're reading the Bible. But believe it or not, this is the most action-packed part of the Bible so far, these laws. Now, he uh, he goes up to meet with God, and God said, here's what I want you to go down and tell them. And now here's the content of what God would like Moses to tell the people who are waiting at the bottom of the mountain. You have seen, right there, we need need to pause for a moment. They are being told, Moses is to tell them, you have seen. You've seen what happened in Egypt. It was only about three months ago. But what, what do we do when God works in our life after just a little bit of time? Forget. Become blind and deaf too. This happens to me all the time. I pray and pray and pray for God to act in my life and He does and I'm excited for five minutes and then I'm discouraged because God's not working in my life. (laughs) But they're called to remember, you have seen 
And God offers this beautiful poetic image. It's eagles, plural. Uh, eagles are, are in the, the Bible this image of protection, at least I'm thinking of like Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 11. There's an image of God protecting the people like a mother eagle. It's actually the same language used for the spirit of God hovering over the waters like an eagle in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. But the eagle is an image of of swiftness and strength and speed. And it's a metaphor for how Israel got here to the mountain. You saw, it's like God commands eagles to go in and grab the people. You see, being freed from Egypt was only part one. Being freed from your sins is only part one. There's more to come. And God flew them out. And where did he bring them? What was the point? Where was he taking them? Just into the desert? Say, now you're free. No more Pharaoh. Go on. Have a nice life. He said, I flew you to myself. I want you right here. You're going to sit here for a year. And you're going to learn what it means to have been saved. It takes a while. Don't imagine a series of Bible studies will do the trick for anybody about what it means to be saved. It's going to take a minute for the people to clock with what God is up to. You have seen. Now the subject, okay, fifth grade English class for a minute. Jason hit the ball, something I never did in Little League. Um, Jason, well, Jason struck out or something like that. Jason hit the ball. What's the subject of that sentence? Jason. What's the object? What's the indirect object? There's one, I don't think. The verb hit. Okay, so Jason, the subject, hit the ball. A lot of times when it comes to God, we have the subject of the sentences be us. God has been the subject of the sentences so far. It is God's work. God is the one who takes the initiative. We have a problem in the contemporary church because we come into the gatherings hoping to be told what to do. Sermons are beginning to be more like, here's how to have a great marriage. Here's how to be a great parent. Here's how to be a great neighbor or do great at your job. Rather than encountering the wonders and glory and majesty of God that's in Scripture, where God is the subject of the sentences. He is the primary mover and actor in creation. We must begin there. You have seen what God did. We have to ask, oh, have we seen? Or have we been only looking at what we should do? Well, it's troubling to sit with what God has done, but it's the beginning. You start with what God has done. But it's not just examining what God has done. 
Because for the first time, once you've recognized what God has done, and it's important that you've done that, once you've seen what God has done, a response suitable to what God has done is required. Grace of God is something which demands a response. There's a way to violate the salvation of God. But here we see in Israel, they don't have to do anything to be saved. God promised He'd do that. Boy, does that make us itch. You don't have to do anything to be saved? No, you must see the mercy of God and find a way to respond in faith. It's difficult. But a response is required. Now, God made a covenant with Noah. God made a covenant with Abraham. And God is going to make a covenant here at the mountain with the people. And for the first time, a response is required. You saw what I did. Now, you didn't do anything to get that or earn that. But a response from you is now needed. And the response is pretty deep. (laughs) That's asked for. How are you guys doing? Here's the line. I think this, this helps a lot. This is from Chris Wright's amazing book, The Mission of God, which you should read uh, if you have a few years free. It's like 800 pages. Um, uh, but uh, biblical ethics, that is our lives before God, the things we do, then must be seen as a response to biblical redemption. Any other foundation leads to pride, legalism, and despair. Do you see the subject of the sentence is first God? And we start there. For the new and the old Christian, we begin with the work of God. The grace is something that gets a hold of us and doesn't leave us in the same situation we were in. I remember being in a conversation years ago with some church leaders. And there was an anxiety in the room among the preachers. How much grace should we preach to our congregations? we got to make sure to balance grace with Discipleship. Because if you give people too much grace, they will not obey God. Well, I'm thinking you're not describing grace, though. You're describing leniency. There's a difference there. You could not talk about grace enough. In any conversation about grace, which also doesn't include the fact that grace establishes a relationship which demands a response, is not in fact a conversation about grace. This isn't something we need to balance out with discipleship and obedience. We just need to talk about it in the correct way. That God has acted and The only way to violate that grace is to reject it by not responding in kind. 
This is my way of telling you God expects something from you. Just like we might of our children as we give to them good gifts. There's a line in Paul in in Ephesians chapter 2 where he says, effectively, you are not saved by works. It's very clear about that. Ephesians chapter 2, you should check it out. You're not saved by works, but you are saved for works. God has much for you to do. But he says, and now, if, and here's what we don't like, if. I just wanted to be saved. I didn't want an if-then a conditional clause. I didn't want a sentence that said, now if, then. God saves them, says, you saw what I did. I brought you to me now, if. Only if. (laughs) We don't like this. If you, and here's what the text says, if you listen, yes, listen. That's the Hebrew way of saying, if you obey. If you obey my voice, you shall be to me. If you obey. See, God's brought them out here, these freed slaves, to give them not just something to do for their next chapter, but to call them back to what God has always wanted for creation. People are created for the glory of God. Period. (laughs) Full stop. People are created to glorify their creator. We are called imagers, a kind of, of God. He brings them to the mountain, not just to give them a bunch of things to do because God expects obedience, but because they have an identity as God's people that must be lived into. And he gives them a bunch of laws. Doesn't this make Bible reading tough for you who read the Bible on a regular basis? How many of you, we talked about this a bit at the midweek this week, you hear laws, commands, statutes, ordinances, judgments, and you start to get really excited And you just want to praise God for the commands. None of us like the commands. Because we imagine laws as constricting our freedom. Violating our individual self-expression. Our ability to have a good time. Wasn't it puzzling that throughout Scripture, the laws are celebrated celebrated by the people. The laws give these newly freed slaves a way to enter into creation and to become what they were made for without God giving them the teaching, the commands. They'd be liable to reproduce the empire, to reproduce despair and selfishness. The commands are not there to limit Israel's ability to be full people. They actually provide the only way for them to be what God has made them for. They're not something that restricts their freedom. Without them, it's just vulnerability in the desert. 
But God gives them these commands, which when taken up, you look at what God has done and you say, I don't care how I feel about it. I got to respond. This God is for us. Give me your words, God, that I may take them up in my life. And it's as if it brings us in line with the rest of all creation. I talked a lot about this on Wednesday. But the laws are for our good. The laws are there to produce neighborliness and flourishing, not to restrict our freedom. Try boasting about laws of God in our society today. You'll look like a mindless religious person. It talks about obedience, as if obedience to God was something to be embarrassed about. As if it's thinking about obeying God. It's like, I don't want people to think I'm just a mindless obedient. Like, good, you shouldn't. You should communicate that you obey God because you have seen. Because you believe He's for our own good and He is God and we are not. But it's an identity. He says, you shall be, what does he say? How you guys doing? You okay? We're getting there. You have seen what I did. Therefore, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession. This is a word used to talk about if you have a covenant, you have one making the covenant. That's usually the greater power and authority. And you have the person he's making a covenant with or the group that the covenant's being made with, and they're often referred to as the special possession belonging to the one who makes the covenant. If, if you obey my voice. If you don't obey God's voice, you can't be like in a covenant with him modeling his goodness. If you just receive the mercy of God and go about your life and build your little life without God and don't seek to obey him, you shall not be like a covenant partner with him. A covenant expects something. You will be a treasured possession, covenant partner, if you obey his commands. Indeed, the earth is mine, but y'all shall be for me a kingdom of priests. Well, this is unprecedented in the ancient world and today. Not a kingdom with priests, a kingdom of priests. If you obey, what happens is you're given an identity. You are given someone, not Pharaoh, someone else to belong to. And you will be, in some sense, mediators of him. You'll be a holy nation. Kingdom and nation are political terms. Priestly and holy are like sacred terms. The two, the sacred and the rest of the political world, they're coming together here. If you obey me, you will be like people who reveal something of what I'm like. Think about what priests do. What do priests do? What does a priest do in, say, the Catholic Church? Yeah, intercedes. Go between in some sense. He, they do what Moses has been doing. Going up, hearing from God, speaking to the people, bringing the word from the people back to God. The whole group will be like that. 
but they'll be priests specifically because they will return praise to God as priests as they live this covenant and obey these laws in a public sphere and show what he's like. They will, priests like priests, come back and worship him and return praise to God. The whole nation, all of you in Israel are priests for God if you obey. Not you will be saved if you obey, but being saved from Egypt is part one of what it means to be saved (laughs) in some sense. Now to enter into why you were created, you obey my voice and I will use you to glorify myself. Now, really quick, we're almost done, I promise. I know it's, at least it's hot up here. Look at this. It doesn't stop with Israel. Look at how the Apostle Peter talks about the church. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, in order that you might proclaim the excellence of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. I know the old timers are familiar with this verse. Where do you think Peter got this? If you obey. You shall be. You have been called to be priests in my world. Look at the beginning of the book of Revelation. It opens with praise to God. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness and firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth to him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests serving his God and Father. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Again, praise to God later in Revelation. And they sang a new song, speaking of the Lamb. You are worthy to take the scroll and break its seals. You were slaughtered and by your blood you ransomed for God saints from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them into kingdom and priests serving our God and they will reign on the earth. This is like a theme throughout Scripture. In fact, Adam and Eve in the garden are described, what they're created to do is all priest language. People have always been for the purpose of being priests, that is to worship God and to return His praise to Him. If you obey, you'll be a kingdom. Jesus has purchased it says here, from every kind of people. This is a covenant which is not defined by biology. Everyone who comes to believe takes up this identity, this calling, this belonging as a priesthood. It's amazing. The Apostle Paul at the end of Romans, he looks at his evangelistic work. He says, I'm like a priest bringing the Gentiles before God as an offering. You see, this is the life of those who have been redeemed and choose to become a covenant partner with God. Belonging. Now, if you believe 
that uh, having been saved means that you no longer belong to yourself, you're going to have a tough time. (laughs) A better time, I would say, but it's still very difficult in our society. The message of the church is... Our identity is connected to having been saved. We belong to Him. We follow His commands, not our own. But this is really difficult. It's a hard message to preach. And it's a hard thing to, I think, even just hold on to. In, in the wake of what has been called secularism, you're familiar with this term? Uh, it, this is often described as a secular age we live in in our part of the world. Part of the thing that has happened due to this secularism is instead of imagining a, a God who is the backdrop for all reality, God is a part within creation. He's part of reality, not the whole thing. That's a fairly recent turn in the history of the world. Even 500 years ago, most people accepted the fact that there are gods, angels, demons, fairies, whatever else. The world is bigger than what we can see. It's the default assumption of most people. Atheism isn't really like a thing until fairly recently in the history of the world. That is no longer the world that we inhabit. Jesus is not the backdrop and setting for all reality, but Jesus is one option. God is one option among many. But their options so that you might have a better life. <laughs> we want Jesus in society. He makes it a better place to live. He's a great option for us. You have all kinds of things that can bring you fulfillment in your life, and Jesus is one of them. And the church has fallen victim to this kind of game. And so what do we do? We dress Jesus up as the best possible option among the options. He's a great option. Yeah, there's Whole Foods and yoga and whatever else is offered to us to to turn us into better people. But Jesus isn't an option among the options is the claim of Scripture. He is the God. He's outside of that ridiculous framework. But we, we can tend to look at God as something that we need to dress up and show to the rest of the world. As if God were there to make us our more authentic selves, or to make our lives just better. But if we don't belong to ourselves, but having been saved, belong to God, then the goal must not be to be the most authentic, most fulfilled, most expressive, most happy individual on planet Earth. That is a challenging message. But I think it's the one that Scripture is summoning its readers to. 
to obedience to this God. That is the core of what it means to believe in Him. Not because He's arbitrary, but because He's good. We don't belong to ourselves. I don't belong to me. I didn't want to move to the desert. I don't belong to me. You may not want to be in the position you're in. You don't be, maybe you don't want to sit next to the people you're sitting next to right now or be at the job you're, you're at. You don't want to be where you are. And so your whole life is consumed with how do I get God to get me to where I need to be rather than viewing a life. I don't belong to me. And it's a challenge to make the church an exciting place to be if we imagine we don't first and foremost belong to God. And so I think some of what this chapter does for me is it tells me this at least. We need to think a little bit more critically about what it means to gather as the church. Ain't it hard to get people to attend the community? It's difficult. It's difficult in, in, uh, in this moment especially to try to persuade people to be a part of the, the covenant people. Do you find this? Maybe you have a hard time persuading yourself to be a part of it. Maybe you, you find things like sharing the good news about Jesus. Or having a, a morality which grows out of His mercy. Maybe you find those things difficult as well. But it's difficult because I think we still live in the mode. And it's no one of our faults. It's the world we live in where the goal is to be the most fulfilled, the most authentic, the most happy. We don't imagine our lives as belonging to someone else. Someone who calls us to give to others. And this is a challenge because we have, a, we have talked about church even in the best moments in church. We still think of it in terms of what we get. But what if the gathering of the saints wasn't about what we take away from it, but in our, a, a place where as the people of God who belong to Him, Come to worship and give. Because otherwise what we do is we compete trying to dress Jesus up to get people to come. It's awesome. We have great programs. We have really practical sermons too. Well, today we are competing against podcasts where people have PhDs and whatever measly subject the preacher like me would try to fumble his way through. You can listen to a better sermon, a more practical, a more relevant conversation about whatever marriage family from a podcast. You don't, you're not going to get that necessarily at every church in America. But what's the point of gathering? See, that's where I think we get stuck. The challenge is to begin to see ourselves as not belonging to ourselves, but for the glory of God, to give ourselves to others. Why have I landed here? Because we live in a society that tells us we belong to ourselves first and foremost. And it's an offensive thing to say, no, not if you're the Jesus follower. 
Look at this. This is great. We'll close here. But if we are not, in fact, our own, then living authentically will not produce human flourishing. And a society that compels us to live authentically will only make us increasingly distressed, exhausted, and alienated. If we weren't made to just make our own best life, but we were made for the glory of God, then all of the energy we spend on trying to be the most happy, the most effective, protecting ourselves at every turn, if we live like that, it won't produce what we're after because we can only get what we're looking for by realizing we belong to God first. If you've been saved, God has, God has said to the saved person, if you obey, if you come to me and listen to my voice, well, what does this have to do with Jesus Christ? Well, we looked at what Peter says. It's everything. You have seen, at least by reading the Gospels, you have seen what Jesus has done. Don't let your, your relationship with God be based on what the church says necessarily first and foremost or what the preacher says, but spending time with what we see in Scripture, the death and resurrection. You have seen what God has done for you. You have seen what God has done for all of creation. Now, the only way to violate what God has done is to just like, yeah, but I still belong to myself, but that does make me feel forgiven. The gift itself draws us into a relationship where we begin to recognize, I could never go back to just belonging to me. I have been purchased by this one who has died for me. And communion gives us an opportunity to remember, you have seen. Now let all of our lives grow out of belonging to this one who has died for us. Just like Israel was called to give all of who they are to the one who brought them out of Egypt. Let's pray for the, the cup. Father, we thank you for... We thank you that you call us to live before you in ways that pull us out of selfishness, anger, and hostility, self-aggrandizement toward life of love and worship. We thank you that salvation is described in Scripture not just as being forgiven or being brought out of Egypt, but, but as being brought under your reign to live by your commands. You give life to us, God, through teaching us how to be. We thank you for the bread and the cup. We see in it the greatest gift that you've, you've offered. We pray, Father, that our lives would grow out of this, what we, what we celebrate in this meal. Cause us to see ourselves as being belonging to you. Thank you for this wonderful meal and how it strengthens us by beginning with the message of grace and calling us into relationship through it. It's in Christ. Amen.